I get a little nervous when I have the sermon. I don't know if you get nervous when you give the sermon, because some of you can say, I haven't given it, so I don't know if I'll get nervous. But I can tell you, I get nervous, and I've selected the topic here of Gideon. And Gideon is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. And I've been thinking about Gideon for weeks. I would read Judges 6 and 7, and as I'm walking along, as I like to do every day, getting in, you know, my 10,000 steps because I need the exercise, it's amazing how the Lord will lead to certain thoughts about what you've been reading. And I have to thank the Lord in the preparation that he has provided me with for the weeks that have led up to today. So I want to thank Victor for reading scripture. It's, it, it, it's exciting to have our young people up here to, to, to participate in our church service. Um, and, and he did a great job. At this time, though, I'd like to take a moment to ask for a word of prayer. Our dearest Heavenly Father, we know that this is not my time, but your time. We know, Lord, that you have been impressing for weeks on this topic. That, Lord, I ask that I can put a self side. And may you step forward and provide this message through me so that it would have a special meaning for each of us here. We ask in your most precious name. Amen. I don't know about you, but I'm not a big fan of the news. As a matter of fact, I would be perfectly happy if I never turned on the news. Because it's kind of depressing. This world is in turmoil. We have the COVID-19 virus out there. And you can't be helped but reminded at everything you do. I know my dad is in a nursing home, and they quarantined him for 14 days after he had been in the hospital for over a week because they have the quarantine. And I said, it makes no sense, but it's brought right to our face every time. We can only visit him, one person, for one half hour per week because of the COVID virus. Or maybe you've been disturbed by this rather unbelievable election process that we just went through. And no, it's not over. You just ask some people. But it co continues to dwell on the minds of people. Or maybe you're looking back over the activities that have happened in our major cities and seeing the riots, the looting, the burning, 
It's out there. And we can see that our world is in serious trouble. But you know, it reminds me of the condition that was taking place in the biblical times of Gideon. You say, Theo, Gideon happened a long time ago. But you know that verse that takes place, and I left Pepe over here. We'll have to slide through here. It starts right out in verse 1. And it says, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Judges 6.1. I find it not surprising that the period of time that the people of Israel are under the rule or they're delivered into the hands of the Midian for seven years. You know, seven is, I don't want to say a magic number, but it's very symbolic. And those of you that know me know that I like symbols. And the Bible is full of them. And I think Gideon is one of those two chapters in Judges that is full of symbols. And the year seven represents a complete domination. We can see the same seven-year period happens to King Nebuchadnezzar after he has decided what a wonderful nation he has set up. And immediately he is struck to be an animal and driven by his leaders to live out in the field, to eat grass for seven years until he comes to his mind, or right mind, and recognizes the God of Israel. Sometimes we have to reach our lowest level in order to recognize that we really do need the world. And I wonder, have we not reached that level here in the United States? And you say, well, Theo, how have we turned our backs on the Lord? Well, I don't know about you, but I used to remember the time when we had prayer in school. No, I'm not talking about our Bayberry school. Because I didn't become a Seventh-day Adventist until I was in my 30s or 40s. So I went to a secular school, and we still had prayer every morning. And do you remember the time when the Ten Commandments were set up for the court system? That righteousness was not established by man, it was established by God's commandments. Where are they today? They have been taken down. And man has decided to turn their backs upon God. I'm worried about it. And I believe that the United States is deteriorated today. We do not depend on our creator. We think that we can do it in our own ways. 
Now, please, if you brought a Bible, I'd like you to get it out because we're going to be in Judges 6 and 7. I have a number of verses that I'm going to throw up on the screen, but if I put up all the verses, we'd be reading the whole chapter, both chapters. So open them up to Judges 6 because I'm going to be skipping along and I might paraphrase a little. And if, and if I don't paraphrase it right, I want you to let me know. Okay, so that'll be how I check it to make sure you're reading your Bibles. And we're going to be in Judges 6 there. And as we see, the nation of Israel is in a sorry state. Right up there in the first verse. They did evil. God delivered them into the hands of the Midians. And it was so bad that the people, when they invite, invaded Israel, they came as locusts, destroying all of the produce of the land. So much so that it left the people of Israel without anything to eat. That is how Judges start, 6 starts out. And he summarizes it at the end of verse 10, where the Lord says, But you have not obeyed my voice. Think about it. Are we, as citizens of this United States, have we obeyed the voice of the Lord? Maybe we look at it as a nation. Or maybe we need to look at it as individuals. Have we hearkened that voice that God has spoken to us so that we know when he's speaking to us? But we see, following that, in verse 11, it says, now. So we see the condition of, them, of Israel. But now. The angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Orpha, which belonged to Joash, the Azurite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Well, talk about symbolism. Immediately, my, eye, my mind was just swirling and saying, why would Gideon be threshing wheat in a wine press? What happens in a wine press? You make wine. How do you make wine in a wine press? I think the important aspect is wine is made in a press. And a press represents oppression. And we can see that bread is made from this thing that Gideon was threshing in the wine press. And that was wheat. Wheat is ground and it is the substance of which bread is made. And I find that at this period of time, as we have already seen, that the word of God had been ignored. It was under pressure. The people of Israel 
had turned their backs and the word of God was going out of existence. The people were no longer listening to the word of God. They were doing their own thing in their own way and they were suffering the consequences. Next we go to the next verse, verse 12. And it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I read verses in the Bible and I go, What? You know, it's like Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and had not eaten. And it says, He was hungry. And I go, No, duh. But here we see that Gideon is there hiding in the wine press, and yet the angel says, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. If he was a mighty man of valor, would he be hiding in the wine press? No. No, but he was. But it's interesting that Gideon just doesn't leave it at that. The angel of the Lord has come to him and called him or told him that he is with him and that he is a mighty man of valor. But Gideon is not satisfied with that dialogue. Gideon says to him, Oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles? which our fathers told us about. Is Gideon right to talk about and ask the angel of the Lord, where are you? Look what's happening to us. And can we not recognize? Because the Bible is quite clear that the people of God have turned their backs on the Lord. How can he bless them with miracles? We know that God blesses his people with miracles so that he can show the people of the world through his people how awesome he is. But they have turned their backs on the Lord. I think about the Canaanite woman that we studied about last quarter and we brought it up again this week. There she is at the well. No, not the well. The Canaanite woman is the woman we studied last week that wanted her demonic daughter cured. And Jesus said, no, I, I, I'm here to bless the people of Israel. But she contends with the Lord. And because such a pain, wanting healing for her daughter. Even after the Lord refers to her as a dog, she points out that even the little dogs 
eat the crumbs that fall from the Lord's table. What faith we see. And we see this same strength in Gideon as he contends with the angel of the Lord saying, but Lord, why and where are you? I think at this time in our lives, in this time in the United States, we can ask that same question. Lord, where are you? If we indeed are your people, why are these things coming to be? But the conversation goes on in verse 14. And then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And I thought to myself, what strength? Gideon is there in the wine press hiding. But I think we can see the strength of Gideon and his willingness that's the same willingness of the Canaanite woman that's willing to stand up and said, well, where are you, Lord? Because sometimes it takes strength to be able to confront the Lord and say, God, where are you? The one thing I see, though, is that the Lord has sent him. He says, go. And we see that we have this same command found in Matthew 28, where the Lord has says, go. Where? Into all nations, baptizing. So we also are, in a sense, a Gideon, and we have been directed to go. You know, I'm kind of interested because Gideon was given a direction. But does Gideon feel he's a mighty man? No, he doesn't, does he? You know, many times in scriptures we see individuals who are called by the Lord who are saying, what, me? Sorry about that. What, me? I, I, I can't do that. Remember what Moses said when the Lord saw him in the burning bush. He says, I'm going to send you. And what does Moses say? I, 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 I can't speak. And the Lord says, don't worry about it. And he gives him Aaron to speak for him. Here we see Gideon in this next verse. Well, we see here in uh, Matthew 28, 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, 19. But getting back to Gideon, it says, So he said to them, O oh my Lord, how can I 
save Israel. Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I am the least in my father's house. How often do we feel inadequate to do the work that God is calling us to do? Do we feel a little bit like Gideon responding to the Lord and said, wait a minute, I didn't lift up my hand. I don't feel adequate. The Lord does have a way of humbling us when we think we are too adequate. But here we see that Gideon is anything but and feels himself anything but a mighty man of valor. Can you relate to that? Has the Lord called on you to do something that makes you feel a little uncomfortable? He does it to me all the time, like asking me to speak. I'm sorry. I don't have the gift of speak. But it's not me speaking. It's the Lord speaking. And when the Lord speaks, it makes all the difference in the world. Because right after Gideon says, I'm not worthy, he says, and the Lord said to him, surely... I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Think about that. This is the same group of people that were coming through Israel that were so numerous that they were counted as the locusts, just devouring the land and more numerous than the sands. Wow. But Gideon had something special here. He had a promise. The promise of the Lord that I will be with you. And if the Lord is with us, mighty things we can accomplish. And as I read this through this chapter several times, and I tell you, you know, I've been thinking about this sermon, you know, the pastor asked me to do this sermon about two months ago. And, and I've been reading these chapters over and over again because I was impressed that this message is not for me, but it's his message to us. And I was kind of interesting as this conversation is going on between Gideon and the angel of the Lord. I'm wondering as I, I read these scriptures about whether Gideon is truly convinced that this is the angel of the Lord. But you know, when in doubt, let's err on the side of safety. So he figures that how can I go wrong if I provide him with an offering? Why not? Can you go wrong if you've made an offering, if you think this is the angel of the Lord? Not bad. He says, will you wait here while I prepare an offering? Right? You can read it right there. 
And the angel says, I will wait for you. Wow. It's interesting when we're on a journey and sometimes we feel a little uncomfortable that we can take promise that the Lord has said, I will wait for you. And the Lord's angel does. Gideon prepares an offering for the angel of the Lord. He prepares some meat, some broth, and some unleavened bread. And he comes back with it, and guess where the angel of the Lord is? He's still sitting under the terabith tree. And we see the angel of the Lord said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. I find it interesting that the offering needs to go on the rock. And we recognize that there is only one rock that we can put our trust in. And that is our Savior, the rock. And that offering here is put upon the rock. What happened next, for those that have your Bible open, that's right, you got your Bible open, right? It says, the angel of the Lord takes his staff and points it at the rock, and what happens? Huh? Fire doesn't come down from heaven, does it? It comes out of the rock which symbolically tells me that it comes from God. Our rock, the rock that we can, tend, we can depend on. And it consumes the offering that is provided to him. And, and I know at that time, Gideon recognizes that he has seen the angel of the Lord. Up until then, he was just playing a safe bet. Why not? Offer the offering. If I'm wrong, oh well. But when the fire comes from the rock itself and consumes the offering, Gideon is undone. Because in verse 22, it says, Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, alas, oh my God, or oh Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Face to face. When was the last time you saw the Lord face to face? Well, if you have, did it upset you? Here we clearly see that Gideon was amazed. This expression is not of one pounding his chest. This is one of Gideon recognizing his total unworthiness to come face to face with the angel of the Lord. I don't know about you, but if I was Gideon, 
I would have been afraid. I would have been afraid that I had been undone. That I had seen the angel of the Lord and I didn't recognize him. Maybe you can place yourself in his shoes. Think about it. How many of you have been called mighty men or women of valor? How many of you have seen the angel of the Lord that has directed you to go? Well, I tell you, Gideon has perceived, he has seen the angel of the Lord, and he recognizes at that time that the Lord has something for him to do. Sometimes we have to have an event like meeting an angel of the Lord before we awaken to the direction of the Lord. I don't know about you, but sometimes I need a baseball bat. Not in my hand, but in his hand to wake me up. And this was Gideon's baseball bat moment. But you know, the Lord had an important task for Gideon to do. As you look down through the next few verses, you can see that the Lord comes to Gideon that very night and tells him that he must tear down the altars and cut down the wooden images of his father's idols. Do you think Gideon is now strong enough to go forth as he has been told to do? As you read those pages, we see that the answer is no. As a matter of fact, he's so afraid of the townspeople and his own father's household that he gets ten guys, his servants, and does it at night. Strong, huh? Sounds kind of scared to me. But what does he do but tear down the altar of Baal and cut up the wooden image that's there, that's his father's, and use it as firewood. And sets up an altar to the Lord. While he might have been afraid, I think it's important that we recognize sometimes even when we're afraid, God calls for us to do something and we do it. I find it interesting in the next few chapters, his father and the people of the city find out that somebody has torn down this altar and chopped up the wooden image. And they want to know who does it. Who's done it? Was it one of you guys? Huh? Did you go and do that? It's interesting the way Gideon's father defends Gideon. And this is very important. In verse 31, Joash, who's his father, but Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? If he is a god, let him plead for himself. 
because he has torn down his altar. It's interesting that his father recognized that this God that he has an altar set up for and wooden images is not really a God at all. And then if he is a God, do you think he needs a group of men to stand up for him? To punish Gideon for what he's done? No, it tells me the Bible does that on that same day, Gideon has his name changed to Jeroboam. Or let Baal plead against him. Because if he's done it to this God, and this God is so powerful, shouldn't he be able to stand up for himself? Wow, have you thought about that and the idols that we hold near and dear to our own hearts? I notice that it's interesting that the Lord, that what the Lord did was call for Gideon to clean up his own house first before he could become the leader to lead Israel out of this oppression. You know, sometimes we ask the Lord to use us in some special way. We may even pray sincerely about it and indeed may want to use it in this ministry or that one. Yet, we are unprepared to clean up our own idols. This clearly shows the importance of a right relationship with the Lord, and it starts with those things that are closest to us. Those may be the hardest to wrestle with ourselves, but they need to be vanquished in order to be a credible servant of the Lord. With his own idols vanquished, the enemies, the Midianites and others, they gather against him and he rallies the people of Manasseh and the surrounding tribes to gather for battle. This brings us to the end of chapter 6 and we move on to chapter 7. I know that the Lord prepares his servants before expecting them to engage the enemy. Gideon's preparation had begun. It was not complete. He questions the Lord with the miracle of the fleece. You, you all know the story. He says, you know, we can, Lord, I'm going to put down fleece on the threshing floor. And the next morning, if the fleece is wet, but the threshing floor is dry, we know that it's your sign. The next morning, the fleece is what? Wet. He wrings out the water in a bowl. Does that convince Midian, uh, Gideon? 
No. He says, wait a minute. Maybe that was too easy. How about if the fleece is dry and the floor is wet? Do you think Gideon is convinced yet? No, he's kind of worried. But the Lord shows him with the threshing floor wet and the fleece is dry. Now remember, I'm the guy of symbols. Do you note what is used in the threshing floor in this miracle? It is fleece. Where do fleece come from? What? Lambs, sheep, sacrifice. Isn't it interesting that God uses a symbol of his ultimate sacrifice to show Gideon, him working in Gideon's life? Powerful for us to note this important fact. All of these scriptures point to the Lord. You know, God's miracle doesn't stop with establishing a leader and having the people just rally around him. Chapter 7 sets forth a greater miracle. The people of Israel have gathered for a great battle. But in verse 2, the Lord has something profound to tell Gideon. So we're in chapter 7, verse 2. And the Lord, once again, the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim the glory for itself and against myself, saying, My own hand has saved me. Sometimes when we have a powerful force and we can bearing it to bear to do God's work, we can beat ourselves on the chest and tell the world, look what I have done. Gideon has assembled a force of 32,000 men of valor. And following this statement, the Lord says, there are too many. Very important, he tells them to ask any man that is afraid, what should he do? Go home. He doesn't want men that are afraid. What does being afraid when given the direction from the Lord tell you about your trust in God. Well, it tells me that if you're afraid and you're doing God's work, you obviously do not recognize that it is Him working in your life, so you're afraid. So He doesn't want them as a part of His army. He still has 10,000 men at His side. Do you think the Lord is satisfied? No. No. He says, I have another test for them because there's still too many men. 
So he takes them down to the water and he tells them to drink. And most of the men get down, they kneel down, and they lap from the water directly. But he says there's a small group of men that take water in their hands and always looking up, lap the water from their hand. And I say, why are they so special? But you know, God wants his servants to always be alert. Don't let down your guard. When those other men were willing to stoop down and take their eyes off the Lord and drink the water, they disqualified themselves. But those that were willing to continue to look to the Lord and bring the water up to their mouth, they were the selected few. And how many men were there? I hear it out there. Some have mentioned it. 300 men. We can see in chapter 7, verse 7, and it says, Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped the water, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Now, does it surprise you that we see in this number the number three? Three has a very significant meaning in the Bible. Do we know what else has three in the Bible? The Godhead. God shows himself in threes. And while this is 300, it's interesting that God has divided them up into three groups of 100 each. And God has a purpose for those men. And it's interesting that Gideon, under the direction of the Lord, divides those men into equal groups of 100. And symbolically it tells me that each of the Godhead entities are equal. The threes, and 100 times three is 300. It's powerful for us to recognize this. But you know, Gideon, I can tell, is getting a little worried. First he had 32,000. Then he only had 10,000. All right, guys, which one of you want to go to battle against the enemy that's as popular as the locusts with only 300 men? But let us remember one thing. Whose battle is this? Is it Gideon's or is it the Lord's? Well, the Lord has another miracle for Gideon. It's night and the darkest hour before the battle is to take place. And the Lord calls for Gideon to take his trusted servant and to go down to the camp at night. Sounds kind of scary to me. 
mean, if there's that many out there, why would I want to go into their camp? But we see here that as Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to a companion. He said, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a large barley loaf tumbled into the camp of Midian. And it came to a tent, and it struck it so that it fell and overturned. And the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, and the man, a man of Israel. Into his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. How'd they get that? You know, I, I, I'm no Bible scholar, but I like symbols. So I said to self, Theo, there has to be some meaning there about this barley loaf rolling into camp. What does a barley loaf mean? Well, we know bar a loaf is what? Bread. It's kind of interesting that we know that the Lord provides us with the bread of life and he is the word. He's the saving word. Okay? And it's interesting that it's a barley loaf because in times of famine, barley was a rather humble edible for those that are struggling. And think about it. The people of Israel are struggling. And here I see God saying, with this plain and humble word of God, we will overcome the enemy of darkness. The amazing part is the Amidians were getting the message. Not Gideon. They were getting the message of God. He was providing them with the bread of life. I know it's symbolic. You can think about it yourself. But you know, Gideon is reassured and returns to the 300 and they are divided into three equal groups and armed with a torch covered with a pitcher and a trumpet. And in verse 20, it says, Then the three companies blew their trumpets and broke the pitchers, and they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their hands for blowing. And they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. What a powerful witness. The torches represent the light of God's gospel. And when that torch, that light, is held high so that all can see, darkness is dispelled. 
But in their other hand is the trumpet. And the trumpet is an instrument of warning. And between the word of God and the trumpet of warning, the enemy of darkness is overcome. It is the same today. And it says in verse 22, when the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord, who? The Lord set every man against his companion throughout the whole camp, and the whole army fled. You know, the story of Gideon, the weakest of the least, was used by the Lord to overcome a vast enemy. The Lord wants to use you and me, no matter how weak we may feel, to overcome the forces of evil and darkness today. It is a mighty force, similar to the Midianites in the time of Gideon. But be assured, it is no match for the Lord when we allow him to lead us into battle. Let us sing hymn 537, He Leadeth Me.